encouraging our hearts with truth about our Savior. Isn't it, uh, isn't it fascinating to think about what was happening two years ago in the global pandemic and that uh, just two years ago, even during this very time, we had really shut everything down. I'm, and I know I have been accused of arranging that so that I could miss this conference. And perhaps some of you were wondering if I was doing the same with global military conflict about to erupt, but I promise that's not the case either. We have really been looking forward to being with you and uh, encouraged that you even showed up again tonight. Uh, and that just shows the, the hunger in your hearts for God's Word. And this being a Bible conference, we're going to dig into the Bible and study it together and think through this wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians 10. This is probably not the chapter... Uh, that's not a go-to chapter for a lot of folks. This is one of those chapters that is easy to pass by and, and perhaps not revisit very often because it's full of some obscure things. But I really think there is some truth here that reflects priorities of regular daily living that would keep us focused on Christ, especially that we would not fall. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 10 again. And I want to read the passage we'll study tonight, beginning in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 14, and let me just read through verse 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll help us in this intriguing passage to understand just exactly how it is that we should examine ourselves and to take heed to ourselves that we not fall. Show us tonight how this passage would help us to do all things to your glory. We pray that this would give great character and allow our fellowship to flourish in righteous and godly ways. We pray that it would help us to avoid that which would be participating with what dishonors you and would actually be fellowship with the demonic. We pray for wisdom tonight and we ask for your grace to work in our hearts and the spirit to illumine our souls so that we understand the truth of scripture this evening. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to think about this evening a question that is probably not a question that comes up often in your mind, but I want you to think about this because it really is at hand in this passage. 
When is it that participation in a social event could become partnership with a demon? That's probably not something you've thought about recently, has it? It's probably not the common thing that comes across our mind. Did you think about that when you sat down for lunch with the people you were sitting down to lunch with? Is this social event participation? Now, that's not to say anything about the people you were eating with. I had a wonderful lunch today with your church leaders. I don't think anything about that. That's not where this is going. (laughs) But I do want you to think about that idea. When would it be that a social event that you attend, that you're a part of, would actually be some kind of participation with the demonic? That is really the question that the Apostle Paul demands that the Corinthians think about because it is a possibility. Could you even conceive of a social gathering that has public overtones of affirming something that directly contradicts or opposes the exclusive worship of God? I want you to think about that because that's what we need to keep in the forefront of our minds as we interact with this evening's passage. When does personal participation in an event become personal affirmation of what is demonic? I can think of a number of scenarios that would come to my mind. The question that's often asked of me as a pastor of people who uh, have friends and family who are involved in sinful lifestyles, particularly with now that uh, in 2015 the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court has legalized same-sex marriage, should we attend the wedding of two homosexuals? I had uh, this posed to me by church members when we were asked... uh, Some members, this was long ago, some members had a family member pass away and the family members, the extended family, were Catholic. And I was asked, should we go to the Catholic Mass and participate in the Mass? There are some settings such as this that would bring questions to your mind just exactly how or can or should we participate in these gatherings. And my guess is there will be others that come up to mind and some that might come to your mind even now that it would be good to think through. And perhaps what we do tonight is we set out a biblical grid for how we think these things through because if at stake was our actual participation in something that was connected to the demonic, my guess is most Bible-loving people would say, I want no part of that which means we at least need to be thoughtful about it, doesn't it? Now, just as a reminder, chapter 10 is reminding us of five different examinations so that we don't delude our hearts from true faith, but pursue the glory of God in true faith. Now, you might, as as would be honest and characteristic, perhaps as you read through these verses, you're asking, how does this have anything to do with taking heed to yourself lest you fall? Because there's a lot of conversation here in here about the Lord's Supper. Interesting that we'll talk about that tonight. We we did that just because I knew you were preparing for the Lord's table next week. No, I had no idea you were preparing for the Lord's table next week. But this would probably be helpful as you anticipate that time. But what does it have to do with taking heed to yourself lest you fall? Well, if you follow along, we'll we'll make sure that we, we answer that at least by the end of this evening's study. So we've been looking at five different examinations so we don't delude our hearts 
from true faith, but pursue the glory of God in true faith. We looked this morning at don't trust the signs of belief, signs that are good signs of belief, but not the substance of true faith. Things like baptism or the Lord's table, just participating in them does not mean that you have true faith or that they protect you. Those should be the signs of where your heart is. Secondly, abandon the behaviors of unbelief, and you shed those behaviors that are connected to the idols of your heart and of the world, and you trust in God and God alone to preserve you and keep you. Tonight, we focus on verses 14 to 22, flee from all forms of idolatry. Flee from all forms of idolatry. That's really the focus for this evening. Tomorrow we'll look at keep your freedoms free from idolatry and Tuesday we'll conclude with live for the glory of God. But tonight, flee from all forms of idolatry. Now why? Why is it so critical to get ourselves as far away from idolatry or what we could say is a formalized false religion? Why are we to get as far away from that as possible? Well, the Apostle Paul here sets out two different principles to answer this impassioned plea to flee from all forms of formalized religion or idolatry. And these principles about idolatry are centered around the idea of a religious meal. I want you to remember, again, the context of this is the Corinthians going to the idol's temple, which connected to the temple would be a social place to gather and have a meal. But the food of that meal would likely be connected in some way to the worship of the God who was emphasized in that temple. But it was a common social setting. It was a common place where people would gather to talk, to enjoy. Yes, the meal at the idol's temple was a typical social function, but friends, social functions have meaning. Social functions have specific meaning, and they breathe a certain kind of commitment, especially when that social function is connected to religious overtones, and as we have been saying, religion was baked into everything that was done in Corinthian culture. So for example, if you were having a birthday celebration, which there is, you can, you can find extant um, descriptions of people going to celebrate a birthday at an idol's temple in first century Corinth, and they're gathering together to celebrate something like a, a, a birthday at an idol's temple, which was kind of like the community hall, the social place you would gather. And at the beginning of that meal, there would be a prayer, and a prayer of dedication to one of the Greek or Roman gods. Now, some people might just pass that off as nothing and irrelevant and, well, that's not my God or I don't worship those gods. I just ignore that part of the gathering. But is it nothing? Paul would suggest here that there's more to this religious social setting than meets the eye or more spiritual connections than you might readily want to recognize at first glance. So why is it so critical not to engage in the social functions like a meal that might be associated with idolatry? Now again, for us Americans, this is a challenging thing to think of. We, we don't have temples like this with restaurants connected to them, really, that we go and socialize at. 
idolatry seems to be so far removed. If you go to some other cultures where you actually see them bowing in front of idols, you might see relevance there. But I want you to hang with me as we think through the ancient culture and begin to see how relevant this is to our own, our own social settings. Two principles that we'll look at in avoiding idolatry, primarily seen through a social connection like a meal, that's what we want to look at. Two principles in avoiding idolatry, primarily seen through a social connection like a meal. Meals are important, and they're primary social connections, and we want to look at how would we think this through in a biblically faithful way. Well, let me give you the first principle first. A meal represents a partnership. A meal represents a partnership. I want you to think that through with me. And I, I, I see that in verses 14 through 18. Now, some of you are thinking a meal represents a partnership. Does it really? Does it really? It's just a simple sit down and we're, we're just enjoying food together. Does it really represent, must it actually represent some kind of formal partnership? Well, some may have the idea that a typical meal with someone is just an average occasion to take care of a human necessity, to make sure that your body has nutrition. But that's not really the way the Bible pictures food. I I won't do it tonight, I won't take the time this evening, but suffice it to say, if you were to study the scripture in this regard, the Bible does picture food as an illustration many times of God's provision. That's why we we ask God's blessing over the food is because we're acknowledging that he's the provider of all things. We never take for granted any meal that we get, right? We pray that way. Give us this day our daily bread because we recognize all provision comes from the Lord and we're acknowledging him for that. But when you share that meal, when you share that provision of God with someone else, you're taking of something that God has provided for you and you're extending it to another person as if they were in connection with you. That's how the Bible looks at eating a meal together. It goes beyond casual relationship and there's some kind of shared identity in that. Now, it's not just because I'm a Baptist, but there's a biblical reason of why food is often associated with fellowship. Now, we Baptists get accused of that all the time. I don't know if you do here, but uh, I'm, I'm starting to notice you, you eat at most gatherings. You eat, you find an occasion. The Bible conference this week on my schedule is a meal with all kinds of people, and we're looking forward to all of those. We love that kind of inter- interaction and engagement, and we, we, we get this. There is a biblical idea that fellowship is oftentimes connected to food. It's one of the primary examples of how we identify in relationship with other people. You're giving of something that is yours to another. You're welcoming them into God's provision that he's made for you. I would encourage you to study that out further. But that breathes some kind of atmosphere here into play. Paul is going to use this as a primary reason why you should not participate in a meal that has a connection to a formalized false religion. And you know it to be true in your regular experience. With whom do you share a holiday meal? Who do you bring people in on a special occasion for a meal? In business, you, you use lunches to entertain, to make a connection. 
to actually perhaps even affirm a business relationship with someone. Friends demonstrate and share in and affirm their friendship through a shared meal. Families do that all the time. Presidents, our presidents, always want to show an affirming formal partnership with other world leaders when they host those leaders at a state dinner. There's something formal about that meal. If you were to regularly eat alone in your home, in one room, while your other families ate in other rooms by themselves, what would you be saying about your relationship? That would say something, wouldn't it? You say, well, some families do that. Well, what does it say? It says something, doesn't it? There's good reason for us to see this. We Christians can readily recognize this kind of affirming relationship symbolized by sharing a meal. Now, let's see how Paul breaks this down. There are two examples to show this very significant relationship. Two examples he provides. First is this. The Lord's table represents a partnership. So it's not just a meal we're going to talk about. We're going to actually bring this down to our meal that we share on an ongoing basis, namely the Lord's table. Well, what does the Lord's table symbolize? What does it do? The Lord's table represents a partnership. Look at verse 14. Therefore, don't miss that connection here with all that has proceeded in light of the extreme spiritual dangers of falling away. This is connected to all of that. Therefore, my beloved, and I just want to stop there, Paul is going to have some hard words with this church. This is not a throwaway term. He really feels for this congregation. He does not want them to fall away into something that is idolatrous in which they would fall over the cliff into unbelief. My beloved, it's as if he is actually even pleading with them and he's going to say some hard things because he wants to maintain close, careful fellowship with them. My beloved, flee from idolatry. And what does he mean by that? Exactly what it says. Run from it. Get as far away as you can possibly be from idolatry. Don't tolerate it. Don't hang around it thinking that you can eat the meal and in your personal freedom and be spiritually untouched. Flee like you are in danger from any form or connection to a formal false religion. That's likely what he has in mind, a formal false religion. Yes, I understand that idolatry can be more subtle. It can be more personalized. It can be a misplaced longing for a specific relationship with someone or something that tends to edge out our affections for God. Anything you are willing to sin for, to have, to sin for, to keep, that's an an idol. But I think here he has some idea of a formalized false religion that you might connect yourself to in a formal social setting like a meal. So keep in mind about the prevalence of this kind of social acceptance of false worship in the ancient world. I want to read a quote to you from one commentator just so that you understand the context in which the Corinthians lived. Listen to this. Paul's insistence on exclusive loyalty to a religion was something uncommon in paganism. 
people were accustomed to joining in the sacrificial meals of various deities, none of which required an exclusive relationship. The Hellenistic world was a great religious melting pot, and tolerance and syncretism reflected the spirit of the times. The Greeks and later the Romans were very tolerant in their attitude towards the kaleidoscope of other religions and cultures. They understood that every nation had its own ancestral traditions, its own temples and its own gods, and that worship of these gods was part of everyday life. Most people honored gods who they thought were useful. Some believed that there was safety in numbers and worship a smorgasbord of deities. The more gods that were honored, the better their chance of success in life. That's the common mindset of the ancient world, and I would suggest to you that pluralism, even in our own culture, tends to breed that mindset as well. We live in a world that is not necessarily exclusive in their devotion to one religion, but we're to be open to all. And now, there's a part of pluralism that I think is helpful. We can be tolerant of the existence of other religions without affirming them as being true, correct? Of course, I I hope so. We can certainly live in a place, live in a country where there are people who worship according to the dictates of their heart, but we don't have to affirm that it's a true kind of religion. We can be tolerant, but that's not what was going on in in the ancient world. This was an embrace of all the other deities of the world. This is where our world is going, where we want to simply embrace and accept all the roads that would lead to some common concept of God. That's really more akin to where the Corinthian culture was. Verse 15, Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say, he has some respect for them to see his point. This is not sarcasm here. This is a truthful expectation. I want you to really look at this and make a decision. Judge for yourselves what I say. Not, not make yourself the determiner of truth, but look at what's going on and what is your role and how are you participating in it. Take some time and reflect personally on on what I'm saying. Give this serious, honest evaluation and reflection. And I would say that's what you and I need to do with what we're studying together. It's not just hear this and think about the initial response that comes to our heart. It would do us some good to sit down and reflect on this and how it shows itself in our day-to-day existence in what goes on in our culture, and give some serious consideration. That's what he's asking here. I speak this to sensible people. You're people who can think this through. Examine this for yourselves if what I'm saying here is true. In verse 16, he says, he goes into this idea of the Lord's table. And he says, I want you to think about what we're doing at the Lord's table. Notice verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. Now this is really profound. I find that a number of Christians do not understand much about the Lord's table. They really don't understand what's going on. I find most Christians think of the Lord's Supper as they think of baptism many times as simply a very individual sign of personal belief. It is that, but it is not only that. Yes, the Lord's table as baptism is a sign of personal belief, but it is also a sign of communal 
participation. Now, I want to show you that. It's a sign of your participation in a particular community. In fact, I hope by the time that we're through with this, it would actually reinvigorate the way you participate when you take the Lord's table. So what does he mean here, the cup of blessing that we bless? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Why does he refer, it, refer here to it as the cup of blessing? Well, that actually is a technical term referring to the final blessing pronounced at a Jewish Passover meal. And it was reproduced by Jesus during the last Passover with his disciples, which became the pattern of which we follow in the Lord's Supper. Typically, the phrase was repeated in the Jewish Passover meal, quote, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the earth, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the earth. That was the prayer. That was the prayer prayed in response to a particular cup at the Jewish Passover meal. It wasn't a blessing over the cup, which is commonly done today by the Roman Catholic system, and many others have tried to adopt that there's some kind of blessing over the cup. No, it was simply a statement of gratitude for what the cup represents. For Christians, it was taken as a prayer of praise and gratitude for what Christ has done in his sacrificial gift before taking of the cup that represented that sacrificial death. So that cup of blessing, that cup of blessing which we take, is it not, Paul says, a participation I want you to pause there for a moment. That is a very important biblical term. Are you familiar? Have you heard the term in Greek koinonia before? It is the word that we typically refer to as being fellowship. That's the word here for participation. The cup of blessing is a fellowship. A fellowship. It is a partnership. It is a participation in the blood of Christ. What is it, my friends, that we are saying when we take the cup that represents and reminds us of the sacrificial death of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins? What are we saying when we take it? We are saying that we are in relationship with Jesus, in partnership with Jesus because of that act on the cross. You are actually affirming your identity with Jesus in the act of drinking that cup. That's why we typically say in our church, if you identify yourself with Jesus because of the act of the cross, the work on the cross, then we do this remembering him together. You're actually identifying with him. That's why we encourage non-Christians not to take of the cup because they don't openly identify with the Lord. When we take the cup, we are in a formal, affirming relationship with Jesus. That's what you're saying. You are in partnership with him, a relationship beyond what is common with Christ. It's a statement of identity. That's what that meal means. If you participate in the Lord's Supper, that is a statement of your identity. That's why we're careful to say when we are taking the elements that you have formally aligned yourself with Christ in partnership. We have a meal, don't we? We Christians have a meal in the Lord's table, and it is formally associated with a religious expression. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus even indicated that as you take that cup, you are actually participating in what he called the blood of the new covenant, 
The new covenant being the new, the final, the ultimate relationship agreement between God and his people that is inaugurated by the blood of his son. You are in that relationship with God. That's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement. But I want you to notice something. It is not merely a fellowship or partnership with Jesus. While it is especially that, it's not only a partnership with Christ. It is also a fellowship with all the others who are participating with Jesus. This is really critical that we see this. We are actually in partnership with each other because we have an uncommon fellowship with Christ. We're affirming that partnership in the substitutionary act of his giving his life in our place on the cross. That's what is meant by the blood of Christ. Not merely the bodily liquid that flowed from Christ, but his death, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death, his redeeming death, the death that absorbed the wrath that was destined for you, that was absorbed by Christ for you instead of you. It's more than just the fluid that flowed through his veins. It is the whole of what the blood of Christ means biblically. When you drink the cup, you are saying, I fully identify myself as one who has an uncommon personal relationship with Christ because of his death, and I am in partnership with all those who are likewise identifying themselves with him in this way. Do you ever think of that in those terms when you take of the table? That's why we do it together. And I suggest that that is how we should do it. That's how 1 Corinthians will encourage us to do it, is together. Not separate, not as families, not off on a little room by yourself. That's particularly the problem the Corinthians were getting into. Some were taking a meal by themselves together and isolating themselves. It's hard to show yourself to be the body of Christ when you're isolated from everyone. But this meal says we're all together, the people of God, by this cup. But not only the cup. Notice the next phrase. Verse 16. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is, this is really helpful. What is he referring to here? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Well, it's an obvious reference to the last Passover where Jesus ate that Passover meal with his disciples before his crucifixion. And at one point in the meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. By the way, there's only one possible reference in the New Testament to it possibly being the statement which was broken for you. That's likely not what Jesus said. He did not say my body is broken for you. His bones were, of course, not broken. Most manuscripts do not include that phrase in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. None of the gospel accounts record Jesus saying my body was broken. This is my body, which is for you. It's for you. My body is for you. To take this is to assume that you are now participating in the body of Christ. 
So what was he saying? What is he referring to when he makes that statement? He's not just talking about his body being physically broken on the cross. That is not the fundamental idea when Jesus broke the bread and handed it to them. He was not referring to his body on the cross. His body on the cross is not the focus of the bread when we take it. How many times have you thought that? Uh, we're taking the bread. It reminds us that Christ, his body, on the, that is not the fundamental focus. Just as blood does not merely mean red liquid flowing through his veins, the death of Jesus and all the theological meaning behind it, so body means more than just his physical body. His body is his presence, his representation on earth. And Paul calls it a fellowship in the body of Christ. It's a participation. Koinonia is the word again. A fellowship in the body of Christ. We're participating in the representation of Jesus on earth. To break the bread, to share the bread, partake in that bread that was shared is to identify with Jesus as his representatives to identify with each other as being we are the collective body of Christ the representatives of Christ on earth now if you doubt that interpretation of what I'm saying look at Paul's explanation of it in verse 17 why is this a participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread and we who are many are what one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What does the bread symbolize? The body of Christ on the cross? No, the body of Christ who's all participating in eating the bread. One bread because there's one body, that is the church, and we are all fellowshipping in that representing who he is. We are his body. It's a very significant statement. It's what we're saying when we take the bread. We are the body. That's why I would suggest again, it is appropriate for a church, though I know many people do it very differently, it is appropriate for a church to do all of it together. We are together taking it, and as we do it together, it's as if we're saying to everyone around the room who takes it, we are his body together. You are linked to me and I am linked to you because we are all linked to Christ and we represent him together. That's not an uncommon way to understand the body of Christ in the New Testament. Later in chapter 12, Paul will even say, now you, and it's the plural use of you in the Greek text, meaning that he's referring to the local church, you, Corinth, you, Corinthian church, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are all collectively. It is true that this church, Newton Bible Church, is the body of Christ, just as it is true that Summit Woods Baptist Church is the body of Christ. Every gathering of God's people as a local expression is an expression of the body of Christ. Not pieces of the body, we are together the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's what the Lord's Supper is symbolizing. We're one people. Eating of the same spiritual food, same spiritual drink together. Body of Christ is just another way to describe the church, the local church. The local church is the only tangible expression of the universal body of Christ. If you want to know where the body of Christ is, you go show up at church. That's where the body of Christ is. By all eating of the bread during the Lord's table, we're saying we are the body of Christ together in partnership with each other because we're in fellowship with Christ. So in other words, it is no small statement of identity that we're making when we take the Lord's Supper together. And that's why we do it as a church and we do it together. I'm I'm reluctant to do the Lord's Supper at a wedding unless the whole church is there. I don't want to just see the couple do it. What are we saying by that? That they're the body of Christ alone and the rest is not? I mean, what are you saying when you take the Lord's table? It's not just about you individually. It's about the church. It's about the church. That's why you, you can't live in disharmony with the church. Because when you take the bread, if you're living in open disharmony with the fellowship or you're taking it in such a way that you show yourself to be disjointed, you're not really showing a good picture of the unity of Christ and the body. You're publicly, formally, overtly aligning yourself in partnership, in relationship, in union with Jesus. Now, if we are saying that in our meal of declaration and dedication to Christ, what would you be saying if you ate a meal of dedication to another God other than Christ? What would you be saying? If we're saying that in our meal then how is it that you could participate in a social gathering dedicated to the honor of something or someone who is not a true God? Do you see how the example of the Lord's Supper is a meal that represents a specialized relationship and partnership? That's the first example. But he pulls out a second example for them to look at as well of this partnership. The second is this, Israel's sacrifices represented a partnership. Israel's sacrifices. So our Lord's Supper represents a partnership, but Israel's sacrifices represented a partnership. And this is really interesting. It's in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. This would be like he said earlier, look at our fathers. Consider the people of Israel. Israel of old are not those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar. Now, typically, when people read this, they immediately think of, this is probably a general, general reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system, where an Israelite man would come and he would lay his hands on the animal, he would cut the throat of the animal and drain its blood, and, and the animal would be offered in the man's place on the altar as a substitute, and he's aligning himself with that animal who is a substitute. There's only one problem with that. The man who offered and actually cut the throat, it wasn't the priest, it was the man, the sinner, identifying with the substitute. He cut the throat of the animal, spilt its blood, it gave its life in his place. That man did not eat any part of that animal. Who did? The priest did. 
That was a means in which provided for the priesthood. But the man did not participate by eating the animal, so that's not likely what Paul is referring to here. Some would suggest that it is a representation of other offerings that you'll find in places like Deuteronomy chapter 14 where the general people in Israel would eat a portion of the tithe. They would have a tithe of the produce of the the land that they brought in every year and they would eat a a portion of that produce. But that is not likely the idea either. There's no tie to the altar in that. So how are we to understand this? Well, I want you to think this through carefully in light of what we've studied already. How has it been that Paul has already described Israel so far in this context? Has he referred to the Israelites in positive light or negative light? What's obvious of what we've looked at in negative light, right? Verses 1 to 5, most of them, he says, God was not pleased with them. In verses 6 to 13 that we looked at in the gathering this morning, they were desiring evil things. They were idolaters, immoral, putting Christ to the test and grumblers. That's not positive. So it's very possible that Paul is not referring merely to Israel as an historical people. But Israel in the past and the sacrificial system in in general, that's not what he's talking about. Instead, he is referring to Israel as sinfully participating in the sacrifices to other gods. Why? Well, look very carefully again at the phrase, consider the people of Israel. Now, in, I'm using the English Standard Version here, and I have a footnote. Do you have a footnote? You've got to look really careful. I mean, the older you get, you've got to look really, got to get close to it. It's not the people of Israel... Literally in the Greek text, it reads, Israel according to the flesh. Israel according to the flesh. Fleshly Israel. I would suggest to you that means sinful Israel. Sinful Israel. So you you could put that in there because that's literally a good way to translate. Consider sinful Israel. Consider sinful Israel, Israel of the flesh, similar to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Let's think about Israel of the flesh, Israel without the Spirit. This is sinful Israel. And what sacrificial meal did they eat of? Well, they were eating to pagan gods. They were eating to pagan gods. You remember when they created the golden calf? They rose up to eat, to drink, and to play. It was a pagan festival in the name of Yahweh. He's referring to sinful Israel and what they did when they ate in a pagan way. He's aligning, they were aligning themselves with pagan deities, and for that, it brought the judgment of God. What was Israel saying about themselves? What were they saying about their identity when they sat down at a pagan meal? They were not showing their alignment with God. They were showing that their alignment was with the other gods. And by the way, this is what eventually got them kicked out of the land, correct? 
They syncretized the religion of the world around them with their own religion and began to participate in meals that actually showed themselves in alignment with the pagan world. And God removed them as a curse from the land and separated them from the land of promise. So if Israel received the judgment of God for their participation and alignment to eating meals to false gods, what does it say about you if you participate in a meal offered to a false god? Because what does a meal represent? An affirming relationship, a link of partnership, an uncommon relationship, a friendship with, a formal overt connection to the ones you are eating with. An affirmation of the purpose behind your eating. If you were to share a Thanksgiving meal with a Buddhist family and they dedicated that meal to however they were expressing their Buddhism and offered some kind of prayer of gratitude in a Buddhist manner or If you attended and you were visiting with family or friends who are connected to Mormonism and there was prayer made in a way that affirmed Mormonism, or if it was of the New Age sorts and you're eating with someone praying to the goddess Sophia, I've actually been in a family gathering of non-Christians at Thanksgiving time and a Native American prayer was read. What would you be saying if you affirmed that? And if you said, yes, we're joining in this, in affirmation of that. Now, in your conscience, you would say, no, I disavow that. I'm I'm not going to create a scene here or anything along those lines. But if you were to give some kind of affirmation to those who were offering that prayer to that other God or that dedication in that way, what would you be saying about your identity? If you attend a social setting that would overtly link you in affirmation of something that despised or contradicted your your allegiance to Christ, what would your participation in it say about your relationship to Christ, your belief in Christ? Young people, your social setting matters. What you do in social circles says something about your identity. And adults... What we do with our social life matters. It makes a statement. We at least should be very careful and thoughtful about it. Be careful how you celebrate and participate because a meal means more than just taking care of physical necessities. It represents a relationship, a partnership. Now that's the first principle. There's a second critical principle that we'll look at and we we won't spend a lot of time on it, though I, I see... The clock says it's just 7.05 now. Uh, It's been adjusted. That's helpful. Earlier today, I thought, oh, I've got another hour. The clock isn't quite set correctly. The second critical principle as to why we should avoid the social connections like table fellowship that's linked to idolatry is that a partnership, secondly, reveals a commitment. So a meal represents a partnership. But what does a partnership represent? A partnership represents a commitment. That's where Paul goes in verses 19 to 22. Paul says this kind of partnership displayed through your participation in the meal indicates a level of commitment that you have. 
and commitment to something that you likely didn't have in mind when you sat down at the idol's temple to eat. You're demonstrating a partnership of commitment with the demonic. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? What am I saying? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Partnership reveals a commitment. A meal shows a partnership, but a partnership reveals a commitment. Now there's two key lessons about how this partnership with idolatry leads to an impossible commitment to the demonic from a true believer. First lesson is this, idolatry is a partnership of commitment with demons. This is sobering. This is very sobering. Idolatry is a partnership of commitment with demons. If you want to participate in idolatry, you are showing your commitment to the demonic. What is anti-God? Paul begins in verse 19. What, what do I mean by all of this conversation about the Lord's table and what it represents? Am I saying then that, if, that there's really some substance to false gods? Am I saying that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Am I giving a greater legitimacy to what is not a, a real god? And we all know idols are dumb. They're created. They're non-animate. Idols represent false gods that have no reality. We all know that. And Paul admits that. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But verse 20, no, I implied that what the pagans sacrifice they offer to De- demons. Just a note here. The word pagans is not in the original. It's not in the original. Anything from anyone offered to a false god is an offering to demons. That's what he's saying. He's not just saying the pagans. I imply that what is sacrificed they offer to demons. Whether Israel, whether you, Whether the pagan world, anything offered to idols is offered to demons. That's not an original idea with Paul. He is actually referring to the Old Testament here. He's actually referring to a statement in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. Just jot it down. Deuteronomy 32, 17, where God says, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. That's who Israel was offering sacrifices to, to demons. By the way, the demonic world is the origin of false religion. The Apostle Paul would say that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to to deceitful spirits and the teachings of what? Where does false teaching come from? 
the demonic. The demonic. And Paul says, I, I don't want you participating with demons. If a meal is fellowship, it's participation, I don't want you doing that with the demonic. Eating a meal that's been dedicated to a false god is bringing you into formal, open identification with that demon. Would you ever say that of yourself? Probably not. You would never say that of yourself. But you need to think of it in these terms. Where there is a social engagement that's openly dedicated to a false religion, that false religion finds its spiritual origins in the realm of the demonic. And if you are openly partnering with it, you are openly partnering with demons. That sounds like a problem to me. That's a problem. There is a second key lesson about how partnership with idolatry leads to an impossible commitment to the demons from a true believer. It's found in verses 21 to 22. It's this lesson. Christians cannot be committed partners with demons. It's impossible. It's not possible. Christians cannot be committed partners with demons. It is impossible for you to be in legitimate relationship with both God and with demons. Verse 22, you see it. This is another allusion to Deuteronomy 32. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That, that's in the same context of what we just read about them participating with demons. Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 says, they have made me jealous. When they, part, when they gave sacrifice to these demons, they made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I think idolatry makes God mad, don't you? <laughs> He's saying that about his people when they sat down at a meal with false religion. It's an offering to demons that provokes his rage. You can't do it. That's why he says, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. It's actually impossible to do. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. If you try to bring them both together, you have honored the demonic. You can't do it. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's not possible. If you do it, you bring the wrath of God. Now, you might say, well, I'm, I'm a lot stronger than that. I can sit down at the table. It's not really anything big. I have a stronger constitution spiritually than that. I think that's what the Corinthians were saying. We live on a spiritual plane far above all of this. There's nothing to it. We don't need to worry anything about it. Paul is saying, no, you don't know what you're doing when you do that. You have openly identified yourself with the idolatry that angers God. So keep in mind, just because you say in your heart, that you're worshiping the true God does not mean that you are. Do you remember Israel's idolatry with the golden calf? 
they said they were worshiping Yahweh when it was actually idolatry that enraged God. Are you actually stronger than God? So you think your constitution is greater than that of God's? God's getting mad over nothing? His anger is, is kindled over nothing significant? A meal represents a partnership, and a partnership indicates commitment. So we need to pay attention to what we are saying we are committed to. We may just find ourselves telling God that we're partnerships. We have partnerships with the demonic. I think that's challenging to apply in our world, but I want to bring this around to where we began the discussion. What does this have to do with the potential of falling? Take heed lest you fall. Well, if you, if you go about and you blindly engage yourself <clears throat> in the social life of the world and you openly identify yourself with that of the world, what are you saying about your alignment to Christ? With whom you link yourself in fellowship, my friends. With whom you link yourself in fellowship is who you are identifying yourself with. Who do you connect yourself to? The people of God or the people of the world? It cannot be both. It is impossible to do both. God will not allow it. Which leads you to spiritual failure. If you begin to participate in the world in such a way that you identify yourself with them, thinking that you're spiritually strong while doing it, you will fall. Take heed, brothers and sisters. If you think you stand, and you stand and yet you compromise loyal identification publicly with God while openly identifying yourself with the non-Christian world, take heed, you will fall. So we've just... We've just gone through this. When we take the table together, it is partnership with Christ. So don't take the table with false religion. Now, that might generate questions, and we don't answer questions till Tuesday night from what I've heard. So uh, you may not ask any of those questions until Tuesday night. And I'm, you should pray for me. I'm going out to dinner tonight with the young adults. So what is that saying? You need to pray for us in that. I hope that means we're openly identifying ourselves with those who love the Lord, right? Hopefully. We've enjoyed table fellowship with many here, the leaders of the church, and we will. And when we do that, what are we saying with each other? We're one. We're part of the body. We're enjoying fellowship with each other. Be careful how you identify yourself. Take heed lest we fall. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful again we are to be able to come and just dive into the Word and trying to understand what it is saying and, and even to wrestle with how we are to apply it. We know there, there are challenging things to think through here in a number of personal settings and we want to be careful with that. Because ultimately, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to represent you well to those who don't know you. I'm mindful that there can be people here who have no desire to openly identify themselves with Christ or perhaps they're hiding and they don't want to 
be known as a Christian in their life. They want to be known in connection with the non-Christian world. Would you arrest their conscience and show them they can't have both? It's one or the other. God will not tolerate our connection to what hates him. But show us also what blessing and what joy and what loyalty and friendship and devotion comes from God's people who are kept by God, who all together display the character of Christ to our world. Remind us of the fruit and the benefit of that. If there's any hint or pull in our heart away from the things of Christ, remind us if we're pulled from him to what will we be pulled if not to idolatry and to what will receive your wrath. Warn us and encourage us. Warn us to take heed lest we fall. Encourage us to do all things to your glory, which is our ultimate joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.